And the thing that I got a lot is why can't you just, and a lot of it had to do around emotions. The way my ADHD shows up is in impulse control and being able to handle my emotions, which is probably why I like am so hyper aware of some of these practices because I have to implement them in order to navigate the world. Hello and welcome to ADHD Essentials, part of the ADHD Rewired podcast network. I'm your host, Brendan Mahan. I'm a former teacher and mental health clinician turned ADHD coach trainer, and consultant. I can be reached at brendan at adhdessentials.com. Here at ADHD Essentials, we help families develop the skills and knowledge needed to better manage attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Visit adhdessentials.com for more details. What's up, team? Registration for the ADHD Essentials 2021 Summer Parent Coaching Groups is open. These groups are designed to help parents with ADHD, of kids with ADHD, or neurotypical parents of kids with ADHD, or ADHD parents of neurotypical kids, however you want to mix it. These groups are designed to help parents better manage the ADHD in their home by, interestingly, aiming at anxiety and connection. The groups are, of course, deeply ADHD-informed, but primarily we're aiming at improving connection between parent and child, as well as parents and parents, and children and children, and also we aim at how to reduce the overall anxiety in the home. Because if we can get those two things nailed down, the ADHD becomes easier to manage. So we focus on connection and anxiety But of course, we also focus on ADHD-friendly strategies and tips throughout the groups. These groups will begin on Monday, July 5th and run for eight weeks on Mondays and Wednesdays, meeting for one hour at 1 p.m. or 5 p.m. Eastern. You pick the slot that's best for you. Go to ADHDessentials.com slash parentgroups for more details and to register for a free call to learn more about them. And of course, check out our partner podcasts, ADHD Rewired with Eric Tivers, Hacking Your ADHD with Will Curb, ADHD Diversified with MJ, and the ADHD Friendly Lifestyle with Moira Maven. If you enjoy this episode and you find meaning in it, or if you've enjoyed episodes in the past, I would greatly appreciate a five-star rating and review in iTunes or your podcast player of choice. Those reviews really help others find the show and helps me support as many people as I can. And this episode, like so many others, was edited by Jeffrey Gordon of Ideal Video Strategies. Welcome to the show. Today, we're talking to my friend, Andrea Goulet. Andrea is an author, an empathy-driven software developer, and an ADHD mom. In this episode, Andrea discusses the patterns of emotion and communication. She talks about the value of recognizing what we say about ourselves, the limits of binary thinking, paying attention to messaging, and the importance of empathy. All right, let's get rolling. I'm Andrea Goulet. I started life as a writer, and then I spent 10 years as the CEO of a software company, 
And now I am writing a book called Empathy Driven Software Development that uses patterns of communication and emotions because I, with my ADHD, I see patterns in words so clearly. And the way I navigate emotions and social situations, it's all pattern-based. And so teaching software developers, because there's very programmatic ways that we program how to implement communication and emotional patterns in a similar way that feels familiar because they've coded so much. That's why I want to have you on. <laughs> Being able to recognize patterns is wonderful. It's totally an ADHD strength. But then being able to flip that kind of on his head and say, like, here's the manual almost, which is what that book is doing of like, this is how you communicate effectively. This is how you navigate emotions more effectively. I should say more effectively. I shouldn't say effectively because in all things, it may or may not work and it may to a lesser or greater extent, depending on how you implement stuff. But the way that we can use communication and emotions to navigate our lives in a way that's a little more systematic is important. Before we started recording, I was talking about how I help people with ADHD for a living and ADHD is life on hard mode. So if I can help someone with ADHD, I can probably help someone who is like neurotypical worried well kind of person. And I'm going to be doing a little stereotyping here and I apologize in advance, but you help engineers and software engineers navigate communication and emotions. And that's like expert mode for communication and emotional intelligence stuff. So if you can help software engineers navigate that stuff, you can help anybody, which is why I want you on the show. At first blush, it's possible people are listening to this and going software. What does that have to do with parenting? That's why Andrea is on. And I asked you that, like, would you ask me on the show? Because I was in one of your parenting groups and I got so much out of it and then you invited me on the show. It was like, I... I only got diagnosed with ADHD two years ago. I don't know what I have to contribute, but so I'm, I'm grateful that I'm here and I hope people find something I say valuable. <laughs> I'm sure that they will. I've, I've spoken to you enough. I know you're full of valuable information. I wouldn't have invited you on the show if I didn't think that. So when it, when it comes to like the big picture, I guess, of facilitating emotional intelligence or communication, what are some of the bigger fruits on the branch that we want to address? So I think the biggest thing is just recognizing that there is more similarity between the way that we navigate social and people. Like it feels really messy, especially for people who are incredibly analytical and want things like in a box and very concrete. If you can illuminate how things are similar and how there are patterns and practices and implementations that you use while you code, and the same thing happens over here, you just haven't learned it yet. And the metaphor that we're using for the book is that it's very common for people who work around technology, right? Which is most people these days, right? It's very rare to go into a company that doesn't use technology. And I find that people identify into one of two camps. They say, I'm technical, or they say I'm non-technical. And the reason that this whole journey started for me, because I reconnected with a friend from high school, Scott, and he read my blog. This was our 10-year reunion. He read my blog and then said, 
I was a writer before. He goes, you're not a writer. The way that you are compiling marketing language and prose is so systematic and so component driven. You're describing inputs, processes, and outputs in the same way that I write code. Will you join me and do a business with me? And I was like, I don't know how to code. Is that a bad thing? And I learned. And so now it's interesting because I have, I had 10 years, you know, in, as a copywriter and I have 15 years now in software. I know enough of these two worlds to be able to translate between them. And I use the term non-technical all the time. The pivotal like light bulb moment where like everything changed in my life was Scott. We had started our business. He had come on the very first podcast. It was a big deal because we had run our business for a couple of years. We're like, yeah, we got a podcast. And he told our origin story and he referred to me as the non-technical founder. And I had been sitting next to him on the computer coding. I had been taking classes and I was so pissed <laughs> when I heard the interview because I was like, how dare you call me non-technical when I have been coding? right alongside you. That is an insult. And Scott, um, who has also been, we are also married now. We got married several years after running the business together and he's in parenting groups too. So Scott is very calm. And he said, I only used the words that you use to describe yourself in client meetings. And right before I recorded that podcast, we had a client meeting and you introduced yourself as the non-technical co-founder. So when you call yourself technical, I will too. Wow, huh? Existential <laughs> crisis. <laughs> I'm mad at you for saying what I say about myself because I don't listen to what I say about myself. Exactly. And we don't. We don't hear how internalized stereotypes are into our identity. And learning to be able to refer to myself as a technical person still feels weird. I have mass amounts of imposter syndrome, but what I realized in the course of this is that the more comfortable we come with software, we are moving towards binary thinking because that's what you need to code. Code all compiles down to ones and zeros and we move everything into true or false, if, else, yes, no, one, zero. And we do that with communication too, but that's just a pattern. Like you can be both. So that I wrote an article on LinkedIn and it ended up going viral. And it was called technical question mark, non-technical question mark, both exclamation point. And it was about this idea of like, I don't have to give up my identity as a good communicator in order to be able to also be a good software developer. Some of that is changing how you're defining things because the, the hiccup you're hitting, I think, is that you're describing yourself as opposed to something instead of in favor of something. So you could be like the people person founder, but that's not how you're calling yourself. You're saying you're the non-technical, which turns it to binary because it's either you're technical or you're not, as opposed to if you are the creative founder or the social founder or the enthusiastic founder or something like that, you can then also be technical and also be a writer and also be whatever else. But as soon as you say you're not something, it's really hard to pivot and become that thing that you're saying you're not. The reason that I used that so much was because when I went to conferences, especially, you know, 15 years ago, my very first software conference 
or 400 people in the room, I was one of three women. And I, I felt coming from the marketing world where it's pretty diverse, it looks like the real world for the most part. I, I was like, uh, Scott, you failed to tell me about uh, this culture shock. <laughs> like, and how, and um, what ended up happening was that, especially early on, about 30, maybe 40% of the people who I first met, the question that I got really early on in a conversation would be, are you technical or non-technical? So I would meet someone new. Hi, I'm Andrea. You know, what do you do? And then immediately it's, are you technical or non-technical? And it's because I am very feminine. <laughs> I don't look like a software developer that everybody has in their head. I don't talk. I don't think like that. And I asked Scott, who very much fits the like stereotype that we all have. Yeah, he does. I, I mean, like very much to a T. And I asked him, I was like, does anybody ever ask you if you're technical or non-technical? He's like, no, I've never been asked that a day in my life. I was like, 40% of the conversations that I meet from people at software conferences ask me if I belong. How much of that is gatekeeping? Well, and so here's the interesting thing. It is all out of kindness. Like, because I asked Scott and he's like, yeah, I do that all the time. It's based out of kindness because I'm so used to describing things to people and it goes right over their head and then they give me these glazed eyes and they get angry with me that I'm becoming too technical. So I'm trying to be kind because that's what's worked for me in other situations. And I said, okay, when you walk up to somebody who's looks like you, do you ask that question or do you only ask that question to people who look like me? And then that was his existential crisis. And he was like, oh my God. And so we have these things where we base them out of kindness and we don't even recognize the systematic impact that people have. Sometimes we've heard this as like a microaggression. Um, my friend, Dr. Tiffany Jana has a book called Subtle Acts of Exclusion. These are kind of things where it's like, they're totally not in our consciousness. They are not meant to be mean or othering but it's the compounding of it happening so often that then I'm like, do I even belong here? Everybody's asking me if I belong here. Yeah. After about four or five years, I was at one conference and somebody told a joke saying there are two hard problems in computer science, cache invalidation, naming things and off by one errors. The joke is that it's like, it says two things and then not, but the naming things in the middle, I was like, uh, wait, 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 what? Y'all think that's hard? Explain to me why you think that's hard. That's the easiest part of all of this. And then I started having conversations with people and that was the thing that was tripping people up. And so all of a sudden I figured out, I was like, I can help here. This is easy for me. And so then I started talking about little frameworks. Like if you're writing a help message, write it in active voice instead of passive voice. And people are like, oh my gosh. And it's all of these tiny little patterns that as a copywriter, I had accumulated a library of them over the years that I ended up using very unconsciously. And so an example is at a conference, instead of saying, are you technical or non-technical? Like, that's great that you're trying to include me, but you have introduced prejudice into the way that you're introducing your question. And I knew this because I had a marketing research class and I had to know the difference and I had to write research surveys in a way that weren't biased. So like I had training in this and it was 
instead of saying, are you technical or non-technical? Ask, what brings you here? I, I don't want to like, I don't want to go too long before I sort of swing things back to ADHD and parenting. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I think some of what's hiding in here is ways that non-ADHD parents can relate to the ADHD kid mm. or ways that the ADHD parent maybe can relate to the non-ADHD kid or mix intermixing those things however you need to, right? This exclusion, this this whole piece of like, I'm not like them is deep in what you're talking about. Yeah. And seeing that in a family, because I do all the time. Oh my gosh. Especially with the coaching groups when I've got a non-ADHD parent who's like, I just can't relate to my kid. I just don't understand what they're doing. Paying attention to, are we using language that excludes them? Yes. Are we using language that excludes us? Because that happens too, right? I'm the non-ADHD parent. And I have two kids that have ADHD and one spouse who has ADHD. So I'm the non-ADHD family member. Well, what is that doing? What is that doing to divide you out of the family? And yeah, is that putting you on a pedestal above them because you're like carrying the load for everybody? Is that making you feel like you don't really belong because they're all having fun and you're boring? Like, I don't know. I don't know what that's doing. But it's important that we pay attention to the kinds of language that we're using. And it's also important that we figure out how to crack that nut and get ourselves back into the connection with the family or the communication with the kid. And even things as simple as like, oh, it's naming that's tripping you up. There's so many kids out there where it's something small that's undermining the big stuff. They would happily send that email, but they don't know what to write in the subject line. They've got like a perfect email, but they haven't sent it yet because the subject line is on is unclear on what to do. Kids fall into those traps too. And, and these are important things to pay attention to in the household. The thing that I got a lot growing up from extended family parents, like the, the thing that I got a lot as a kid, you know, I grew up as a girl in the eighties who got straight A's. I had four psychologists tell me that they wouldn't even test me for ADHD because because I did so well in school, there was no way I had it. And yet I remember, is er, there's a flashbulb memory for me in kindergarten where we had been talking about instructions. And I was self-aware enough where I was like, I really struggle with paying attention and understanding the instructions. That's something I think I should really focus on because I noticed that I don't pay attention. And like, that's weird. And the thing that I got a lot is why can't you just, and a lot of it had to do around emotions. The way my ADHD shows up is in impulse control and being able to handle my emotions, which is probably why I like am so hyper aware of some of these practices because I have to implement them in order to navigate the world. When I would have really, really strong struggles and they came across as tantrums or you're just trying to get attention and in my heart, I was, and then it was like, why can't you just stop crying? And in my heart, I was like, I don't know. Help me. I want to stop crying. I don't want to be acting this way. Shaming me is not helping. And, and it's like, and so I feel that same way where I did feel othered 
And I think it's a small thing. Like, I don't think anybody in my family was meaning to be mean. I really don't. But yeah, it's these small things. And even that question, right? I'm assuming the tone you put into that is because that's the tone you heard. That's not being asked for your sake. That's being asked for the sake of the person asking. Why can't you just stop crying? The subtext of that is I'm sick of hearing you cry. Yeah. As opposed to, hey, you seem really upset. How can I help? Do you need anything? What can I do to help you feel better? Can I get you, I don't know, a hot chocolate or give you a hug? Yeah. There's no proactivity on the side of the person who is managed and in control, theoretically. And so they're basically saying, hey, person who is already demonstrating that you are at least having control challenges, if not totally out of control. Let me add something else to that plate that you've got that's over full, which is stop having an over full plate, or at least stop letting me know you have an over full plate. Yes. So a lot of it was go to your room, figure it out. When you, when you have calmed down, you can come down and be a part of the family, you know, and, 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 and I, I notice I still do this. Like I have, I have two kids and, you know, one of them is diagnosed with ADHD. The other one is six and mm, yeah. And I notice myself like wanting to say those things. It's like, and I think that's the thing is like, we need to not shame people for having these impulses. And at the same time, how do we teach people these patterns are super useful and these patterns are destructive. And I think that's something you do really well, Brendan. Like this is why I love the show and why I love the parenting groups that I've been in because it's like you spot patterns and you're like, this works, this doesn't. And, and knowing those things, I mean, every single one is a little tool in your toolkit. Even go into the room, right? Like sometimes that's a really good strategy, right? It's about why you're doing it and what the motivation is. If you're going to your room because your room feels safe and that's going to help you calm down, awesome, do that. If you're going to your room because you need to get away from people because you're feeling the pressure of them and you just need to take, out, take a step out of that pressure, awesome, go do that. If you're feeling like you need to go to your room because everyone is going to judge you or those people don't want you around and you're being chased into your room, you're, you're not going to your room, you're going away from right. wherever else you are. Yeah. Or you're being told, go over here. And when you've managed your emotions, then you can come back. Yeah, that's not good. That's not healthy. That's not acceptance. And it's, it's hard, right? And when we're making mistakes, like I've, I've, I have a great relationship with my parents. I don't want anybody to listen to this and think that I'm demonizing them. They did the best they could. And just like every parent who's listening to this is, I know I'm making mistakes. So am I. And there will be things like that you mess up. And, and I think that's also part of the social challenge is that in code, there is this like it works or it doesn't. And you don't often get that feedback from human interactions. So you can continue these patterns and it's like, you know, you execute something in code and then it's like error does not compute. And one of the tricky things as a parent, right, is sometimes it works, but it seems like it doesn't because you're getting the error code message from your kid. And it's like, yeah, because my kid doesn't like this, but my kid has to learn how to do this. So if I read that tantrum as an error code message and I let them never have to brush their teeth again, Long term, that's a terrible strategy. I have to ride out some of the error code messages. As a parent, I have to be able to judge, is this a thing that my kid needs to learn how to do? 
or is this a thing that like my kid needs to learn how to do, but not right now. Like they're five and we can wait and like teach them how to do long division in middle school and it'll be fine. Or is it, is it a thing that they maybe never really even have to do? That's a choice too, right? Like one thing that came up on the show a little while ago was schools and testing and how sometimes kids get the result of like, well, you're have an issue with reading because you can't read out loud. But other than that, your reading is fine. And it's like, okay, don't be a newscaster or a podcaster. And other than that, you're fine. It doesn't matter that you have trouble reading out loud. That's only going to affect you in school. Or if you pick a career that requires that, don't pick one of those careers. Beyond that, it's not a disability in any way. But because of the nature of school, we think it is. We think it's a problem when it isn't really exactly a problem. Yeah. And I mean, like coming back to software and kind of, I think this might be relevant for STEM, right? Like, because right now it's like, we want to make sure that there's gender parity. We want everyone to have the same example, like, or the same opportunities. And it's been fascinating diving into the book because one of the chapters is a history of empathy in software. It's so complex, but we need to go back and like, look at why are we where we are today in order to get context and be able to spot patterns. And one of the things was that when personal computers first came out, there were marketing characters and computers were marketed as video games to boys. And there's lots of research that shows that that impacted how educators distributed resources as early as kindergarten. And like Scott and I see this because we went to the same school. He got pegged really early on. Why don't you go hang out in the computer lab? I think you'll be happy there. And I got, "Mm, maybe that's not for you. Maybe you should go into communications. And we got that early, early, early on. And it wasn't just from one person. And I think this is the exact same thing. It's like, it's not just one message. You know, one person who comes up and asks me if I'm technical or non-technical, it's like, well, that's not that big of a deal. I asked you one question. But to me, it's like all these impressions, then it impacts my identity. This is a metaphor that I've used. I used it the second time I was on the ADHD Rewired podcast and Eric Tivers did not understand it, but hopefully it works because it's a visual metaphor that I'm trying to do over auditory. Imagine a shallow, dirty puddle and you're standing on the side of that puddle throwing pebbles in. At first, it doesn't matter kind of that you're throwing these pebbles in because you can't tell. They just go in and disappear and it's like you never threw a pebble in. But even though you can't see it, They're building up a pile down at the bottom of that puddle. And eventually, all of these little pebbles are going to break the surface of the water. Some pebble is going to break the surface of the water. And then they'll continue to pile up and we'll be able to see those pebbles above the surface of the water. That's kind of what you're describing. At first, it's not a big deal. Yeah, you're right. But once you break the surface of the water and we can see all of those pebbles, all of those microaggressions, all of those small signals that tell us something about ourselves. Once they break the surface of the water, now it starts to become part of our identity and part of who we think we are. And it doesn't have to be true necessarily. And I think that there's two aspects to that. Like, I think we focus a lot on the work of not like being aware of the microaggressions that we're sending out. And I think that that's important. There is also the work of recognizing, wow, I got all these signals. That's not actually who I am. Those things are false. 
what? That's the work that I've been doing. I think everyone has this, regardless of like everyone has these signals of this is what your identity should be from just looking at all these different, like just growing up, like just in our culture, you get, you get these impressions. Can I connect some dots? Totally. We've talked about internalized stereotypes, which is, we just went back there, right? That's a piece of this. And you also mentioned that you struggle with imposter syndrome. And one of these pebbles that you keep getting hit with or kept getting hit with, and then started hitting yourself with it was I'm the non-technical person. Yeah. In a technical world, I'm the imposter. I'm the one who doesn't belong here. Even the language you were using to describe yourself was I'm the one who doesn't belong here. And when you wrap into that ADHD and the internal stereotypes that come along with ADHD of I'm not good enough, how come everybody seems to be able to do things more smoothly and with more grace and more capably than I can? Everything is harder for us. Not so much that you can tell if you don't live in our heads, but it's just everything's a little bit harder. And so I look at someone else's average like their ability to execute on average. And I see my perfect. And then I start feeling like I have to always be perfect because if I can't always be perfect, I'll never be average. Like I'll never meet the average bar that I see in school at my job. Right. All of that stuff is wrapped up here too. And, and one of the things we were talking about beforehand, before we, we started recording was the idea that ADHD is awesome and that like those t-shirts that are running around and how neither one of us like that. <laughs> and it's because of this, it's because there's all this, these internalized stereotypes that run counter to that. But also if, if ADHD is awesome becomes the internalized stereotype and you're not awesome with your ADHD, that's even more damaging. Yeah. So the technique that's being used is framing and it can be really empowering to take something that has been a struggle for you and see it in a way that's a strength. So I, I see the really good intention and I see that that is so helpful for some people. And there is something about like, like my ADHD doesn't show up in a stereotypical way. And I have a lot of people believing that I have ADHD. And to me, ha having had undiagnosed ADHD for so long, my impulse control led to incredible debt, very dangerous. Like I put my life in danger many times because I was so risky. There have been very, very damaging consequences that like my friends just were able to have a system that overrode that and was like, that's a bad idea. I didn't have that. Like the way I describe it is like, there's no clutch between like my brain and my mouth. And there's no clutch between my brain and my actions. I just like am always operating in real time. Like I have a thought and it comes out. Like there is no buffer ever. And that can be really useful in some contexts. I was really poor as an accountant. I remember taking, I did accounting for a little bit. I, I had to take accounting a couple of times in college because I kept wanting to switch up the rules. They're, like they showed the gap accounting principles and it was like, here's the series of things. And I was like, you know, if you swap, I don't know if this is actually what I said, but like 
if you if you delete section, you know, step two and nine, and then swap section six and four, you would get the same answer in half the work. And then my account, my accounting professor was right at the same time as like Enron and all that like stuff. He's like, creative accountants go to jail. Just do it the way it's written and don't question it. <laughs> <laughs> so in that context, you know, my my ability to do these things is destructive. As an entrepreneur, that is really beneficial. <laughs> I've made mistakes there for sure, but the um, the thing has been the recovery. And so I think a lot of times I saw something on Twitter and it really resonated with me. And it is the idea of like high functioning typically relates to the amount of resources that you have to be able to manage something as opposed to like your condition. That for me rang true because it was like, oh, now I have this, like, I have medication. Holy crap, medication. It's like this, this made, this was life changing. It was like glasses for my brain. It was like, oh, like I couldn't write this book. I've tried to write a book so many times. And like, I can actually like organize my thoughts. Like I was a professional writer before, but like the scope of this is so big. And I think that's part of it is like being aware of the impact that our messaging that we're sending out has. Listening to like, hey, that kind of isn't landing well for me. And just recognizing it. And then also like you got your own internal work to do. Right. And then you're going to create your own messages and they're probably going to like ping pong against other people. But yeah, the, the ADHD is awesome and ADHD is a superpower. I think the other thing that is a challenge for me is that as a woman who has ADHD, I have a husband who also has ADHD. And so in that context, typically it's the woman who manages the schedule and does all of these things. And when both of us have ADHD, I end up landing in that role a lot of times kind of as the planner. But then I'm like, it's hard for me too. I'm not great at this. This is so hard. And like, that's awesome that you have wives or people in your life who can help you with this. Like I really struggle to do this for myself. And then it's like my ADHD ends up becoming invisible. And then I question whether I have it and, and you know, just all that. <laughs> I noticed that because you said earlier, earlier you said, and a lot of people believe I have ADHD. And I was like, wait a minute. Yeah. Like you, it doesn't matter if people believe it, you have it. Like you've got the diagnosis, you've got ADHD. The end doesn't matter. It like, that's like me saying, well, a lot of people believe I have hair. Yeah, that's a good point. Like, no, I have hair. <laughs> well, it was funny when I got the diagnosis, they have like the spec. I mean, I did like a really in-depth one. It was like six hours of testing and all this stuff, which was neat because then I got like all these different like things that I could dive into. But there was a spectrum of like confidence level that I asked the doctor. I was like, so, I mean, like, how confident are you in your confidence level? Because I see that it's like in the like last percentile, but are you actually confident that that's right? <laughs> She's like, yes. It glows in the dark, Andrea. <laughs> so one of the things I want to circle back on is you mentioned that you, you basically had to teach yourself some emotional regulation and management strategies. What are some of the strategies you've come up with? What's working for you? So this is very recent, as in yesterday. That's recent. <laughs> but uh, I've been in therapy for a very long time, and I had a really breakthrough with my therapist yesterday where she didn't exercise, uh, you know, cause I had kind of a really stimulating event 
and what happens with my body that has happened since as long as I can remember is that my amygdala completely takes over and I can feel chemicals flooding into my brain that are the like, you are going to die, run, run, run. And that's the impulse control, right? It's like, you must do this thing. You have no other choice. And people who have AAG understand this, people who don't, don't. And so I had a, a session with my therapist yesterday where we brought in like in a, you know, kind of at the table, all of these different personas of me. So I had my mom persona, I had my inner child persona, I had what was new was that this anxiety, terror, gonna die came up too. And was like, I want a seat at the table. And every other persona was like, no, 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 we're just going to ignore you. You don't exist. Right. You know, so doing this exercise, the, you know, anxiety persona after everybody else had kind of done their thing was like, look, I have value too. I am the warning signal. And I only go into overdrive when you don't pay attention to me. When you don't listen to what I'm saying. And then they were like, oh, yeah, yeah. Then the persona said, and I called this meeting. I was like, oh my gosh. And then it took, like, we, there was a persona that was like my authentic self. And the persona, I think it's like the unconscious, that feeling that like not rational said, authentic persona, you're not actually the self. You're the pilot. Your job is to look through these eyes and fly this meat bag through this experience. <laughs> and we all have to work together and we all have to listen. That sounds like a really cool exercise. It was fascinating. And I think the, I don't know if it's quite, it, it's not as clear cut of a technique, but it, it just yesterday, there was a situation with my husband. We're like navigating a whole bunch of change and we started getting into an argument and I didn't go into overdrive. The chemicals never flared. And I was like, what is going on? And so I think some of it is like for parents or for people who are struggling with the really intense emotional regulation side, because Scott and I both have a theory like that we've overcompensated in one area to prove to ourselves that we don't have ADHD. Like I I am like, I will get straight A's. I will be a perfectionist. I will get all of the things done. I will do all of these things. And then I just can't control my emotions. And so I'm just not even going to try. And Scott's the opposite side where he's like, I can't get straight A's. I can't get my work turned in on time. But you will never see how I feel. I will manage these emotions very well. I know what that's like. <laughs> I, I've had to work against that. I've had to get more comfortable with my own emotions. And I'm always good with everyone else's emotions. I'm like, I know how you feel. And like, I might tap into that and feel that, but I don't always know how I'm feeling. And I've had to learn what's going on there. COVID has been great for teaching me that because I'm stuck in a house and I'm like, no, I am frustrated. I am angry. I am annoyed. I, am, I do need time to myself. All of those negative emotions that I've worked so hard to not have to have and not have to pay attention to. COVID forced me to look at that, all that stuff. It was hard. Yeah. So the, the one thing I would say is, you know, wrapping this back to a nice soundbite. Like, why did you just tell that big, long story, Andrea? Right. There was a point. And it's 
a lot of times the behavior that you're seeing is because of an underlying cause. And if you start to think of it as a warning system, and for some people it shows up as anger. Can I zoom out on this for a second? Totally. That whole idea of it's an early warning signal. That's really useful to think of in terms of ourselves. It is. It's great. Like that anxiety is an early warning signal. I'm not discounting any of that. But um, your kid who just can't behave and is flying off the handle all the time, systemically within your house, that kid is your early warning signal. That kid is telling you there's too much anxiety in this house. Yes. That's why my parenting groups are aimed at anxiety. As much as I do ADHD stuff, my main target is managing the anxiety in the home. Yeah. Because if I can do that, it's easier to manage ADHD and it's going to improve your relationship with your kids. And if you improve your relationship with your kids, you're going to diminish the anxiety too because they're safer when they tell you that things are too high and too anxious. Exactly. So we're seeing this with my daughter right now. She's six. And last night she was really struggling to go to bed like just big feelings. I want mama, like, oh, like just would not. And so we kind of tag teamed. And one of the things I learned from working with you is like, you have my undivided attention. I am addressing your big feelings right now. What's going on? And kind of treating it as this like, okay, she's handling this absolutely the best that she can, but this is a signal for something else. And after talking to her for about three to four minutes, she said, I just want to go back to normal. For her, normal is pandemic. She was four when this thing started. And she goes, I want to go back to homeschooling. I want to go back to I'm around you all the time. I want to go back to where we don't have to interact with strangers. I want to go back to normal. But like she couldn't articulate that nugget of what was really bothering her until it was like, oh, there's an early warning system that's like, wah, 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 wah. and it's like, okay, okay, I'm, I'm paying attention to you. Scott and I, when we both heard it, we're like, whoa, oh my God, that you're right. That's stressful. If I was six and all of this stuff was happening, we thought coming into the pandemic was stressful. Like for her, whoa, okay, maybe we can adjust how we're, and then once she felt heard, she went to bed, no problem. My guys are 12. And Nate especially is like, when I have to go back to school, it's going to be hard. That's going to be hard. Like he knows. Even I don't care how old your kids are. Everyone's struggling with coming out of the new normal and pretending to go back to the old normal. Yeah. Except that's not really what's happening. It's just a third normal. That's a combination of the previous two. A lot of us, even adults, full grown adults are going to struggle with that. I know I am. I'm still a little bit like, I don't know how much I love that idea. Like I, my kids got scheduled for their vaccination. And I finally felt that relief of like, oh, okay. This is what everyone talks about when they say they got vaccinated and they felt relief. I didn't feel that until my kids were lined up for that. And the very same day we had some to book some stuff that involves like a lot of people. And I, couldn't deal. Like I was not the reason we were scheduling that. I was like, so you're telling me that in 
like months from now when everything is squared away and everyone's vaccinated, I'm going to have to be spending a lot of time in a building with a whole lot of people unmasked and like all everything that is the antithesis of COVID when I'm not there yet. And I, I struggled with that. I couple took me a couple days to be like, all right, that it'll be fine. Then cognitively I knew it, but emotionally I wasn't there. Yeah. And I think that's the thing. That's what I've struggled with my whole life. Like I can rationalize something, but like once I did this like integration piece of actually like it, it kind of reminded me of inside out where sadness, like for me, it's not so much sadness. It's just like, uh, like massive amounts of just dread anxiety like gonna die kind of rather than sadness ignoring it everything crumbles integrating it and going oh yeah you're actually important to like making all of this work so those big feelings that you're seeing from either yourself if you have ADHD or you know your kids that's important because it's signaling something else when you recognize that, then you can start moving into logic because until that's addressed, it, you can rationalize it all you want. And I think that's the, the, the really interesting thing with the software and the everything is like seeing all of these patterns and what, what it all boils down to, like the way that I define empathy in the book is it is understanding other people using both logic and emotion. Because too often we see it as like, oh, empathy is this like feel good thing or like empathy is awful because we use feelings and then we don't use cognition. And it's like, no, y'all, it's important. Yes, things can go wrong. Yes, things can go right. Just similar to the inside out thing. It's like we just have to use this skillfully. And it requires being able to understand both emotions and logic and they all work together. And if you're a software developer who's been told that you have no social skills, that's a lie. If you're a communicator who was told that you would never be good at software and you're not good with machines, that's a lie. You can, you can integrate a lot of different things, but it starts with the belief that you can. And so in the book, the first chapter, we're using the metaphor of um, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, where there's the invisible bridge. And a lot of times there are these chasms in our life, like, oh, I have ADHD or I don't have ADHD or I'm technical or I'm non-technical. We've created these binaries and there's almost always an invisible bridge. And that invisible bridge is empathy, either empathy for ourselves, empathy for other people, which is the ability to understand somebody else using emotions and logic. And every time you practice something, every time you like learn more about those skills, it's in the movie, like throwing sand on the bridge. So for parents who are attending the parenting classes, like, you're getting all of that, but then you're also shifting your perspective kind of in the movie. It's like, you know, you tilt a little bit and it's like, oh my God, there's a bridge, <laughs> right? So I think that's kind of where, where I am is like in software, empathy is always there. There are specific reasons in terms of the history of why we created our culture the way we did. That doesn't mean that it's not there and it doesn't mean that it's not accessible. And same thing with people who feel different in terms of whether or not they have ADHD or don't. You have the capacity to understand other people. It's hard and you can do it. And just being mindful of time, do you have any ending essentials that you'd like to share with our audience? Understand yourself first. There's the um, Buddhist meditation practice of metta, where you start with having compassion for yourself and then you kind of 
go outward in concentric circles. So then you go like to somebody that's really close to you and then somebody that you know as an acquaintance. And then eventually you go to whole world. And I think developing empathy, software developers always ask me, they're like, how do I do this? I'm like, well, start with yourself because you don't need any data. You don't have to collect any external data to know how you feel. For another person, you got to know how to get the right inputs, but you've already got all the data you need for yourself. So starting there and then building that self-awareness and building that self-compassion and then moving outwards. And that has been a really good practice that I've seen work over time too. Hey, you're still here. Nice. Thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at brendan at ADHDessentials.com. And don't forget to check out the website, ADHDessentials.com, and visit our Facebook community. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. In the meantime, keep focusing on improvement over perfection. 10% better is all you need. Music